Good morning. It's Monday, October 19th. I'm Shamita Basu. And I'm Duarte Geraldino. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. After eight months of life being upended by the coronavirus, experts warned that we might now be facing a fall surge. On Friday, the country reported the most cases since July. According to CNN, 27 states are seeing spikes in cases, and only two states' numbers are headed in the right direction, Missouri and Vermont. What could be helpful at this point is to take a moment to recognize which states handled the first wave well. Politico assessed a number of states and measured their success with handling the pandemic. Let's start with Vermont, where about 60 people died of COVID-19 as of October. That means the state had the second lowest death rate per capita in the entire country. So if the U.S. were as lucky as Vermont, only about 30,000 Americans would have died from the virus instead of the more than 200,000 who are no longer with us. Here's Dr. Anthony Fauci speaking with state leaders about what Vermont got right earlier this year. This should be the model for the country of how you've done it, notwithstanding that you're a small state, but it should be the model of how you get to such a low test positivity that you can actually start opening up the economy in a safe and prudent way. Vermont figured it out. It locked down early in late March, and that lockdown is still gradually being lifted. It imposed a two-week quarantine for out-of-state visitors, and the state lets local governments set their own stricter rules. The experts told Politico, if you want other examples of states that got it right, look at Michigan. It figured out how to narrow the racial disparity gap. In the beginning of the pandemic, Black residents accounted for 40 percent of deaths. Today, it's more like 10 percent, which is more in line with the size of the state's Black population. As for the states that did the best job handling the economic fallout, Politico looks at Colorado, Iowa, and Minnesota. Now, Colorado is one of the few states that allowed workers to refuse to go back to work if they felt unsafe. All three states paid out unemployment checks right away. And Iowa and Minnesota offered some of the most generous amounts of aid, in addition to what the federal government was giving. And finally, there's Rhode Island. This state made the most decisive and perhaps best plan for reopening schools, according to Politico. There's so much more in this political piece. It talks about which states got housing relief right, urban success stories, and general disaster preparedness. And as we enter another wave of this virus, these states may be able to offer some lessons that could help us get through it. In Georgia... The amount of time you spend waiting in line to vote has a lot to do with where you live and the racial makeup of your county. Georgia Public Broadcasting and ProPublica, they analyzed data from June's primary. In places where the majority of voters are white, the wait time at the end of the day was six minutes on average. In places where the majority was non-white, the wait time was closer to an hour. ProPublica explains what accounts for this massive difference. The fact is, Georgia has a lot of relatively new voters. ProPublica's reporting says since 2013, voter registration in Georgia rose by roughly 2 million people. And a lot of these new voters are young people of color. But at the same time, the state has also reduced the number of polling locations by about 10 percent. And on top of all of this, you have the pandemic strain. 
In the June primary, because of the coronavirus, the state had to close two polling places in Fulton County at the last minute. So 16,000 people were assigned to vote at a restaurant event space. Mm. That line was 350 people deep before the first vote was cast. Yeah, what this reporting finds is most of the polling place closures happened between 2010 and 2018 under then Georgia Secretary of State Brian Kemp. He's now the governor. And an important thing happened during his years as Secretary of State. In 2013, the Supreme Court struck down key parts of the Voting Rights Act, which ended federal oversight of voting laws in individual states. ProPublica says that decision is what allowed people like Brian Kemp to largely ignore any complaints about too few polling places in majority non-white counties. To give Georgia credit, it tried to make changes ahead of this election. It added some polling places in areas where lines were the longest in the June primary. Fulton County doubled its election budget and purchased mobile voting buses. And there are now more than 30 early voting sites. And the Atlanta basketball team donated its arena to serve as a mega site. But still, on the first days of early voting this year, many people waited hours in line to vote. In August, Russian anti-corruption activist Alexei Navalny was poisoned. He was dosed with a deadly Russian chemical agent known as Novichok. He survived, but spent nearly three weeks in a coma at a Berlin hospital. He's now slowly recovering in Germany and recently gave one of his first interviews about the experience to The New Yorker's Masha Gessen. Navalny has spent a decade documenting corruption and abuse of power in the Russian government. Gessen describes him as the biggest thorn in Vladimir Putin's side. And yet, Navalny says he can't quite understand why he was poisoned. If the Russian government wanted to get rid of him, he says there were so many other ways to do it. It happened when he boarded a flight home from Tomsk to Moscow at the end of the summer. He sat down in his seat and he started up his laptop to watch Rick and Morty, as he does, when he says that he started to lose focus. He went to the bathroom and realized he had been poisoned. He felt dizzy. He felt pain. He told a flight attendant he was about to die right there on the plane. He woke up days later in a hospital. Navalny lost his ability to speak and write. He slowly regained both. He was in the ICU for 26 days, but tells Gessen he feels like he's aged decades. Navalny says he'll eventually head back to Russia, keep on fighting Putin and corruption, because as he puts it, if he gives up now, then Putin wins. And finally, we've been talking for weeks now about the extraordinary measures some Americans are taking to make sure they can vote this year. Mm -hmm. From an astronaut casting her ballot from space to a 103-year-old woman who was born when women couldn't vote. She said there was no way she wasn't going to exercise this crucial right. Well, today we end our show with the story of James Wendell Williams. This comes from The Washington Post. Williams was diagnosed with terminal cancer earlier this year. And throughout the year, knowing that his time was limited, Williams kept looking at his calendar and waiting and hoping that he would make it long enough to vote in this year's election. On the first day of early voting in Michigan, Williams was really weak. He lost so much weight that he had to lean on his son and daughter-in-law to get to the ballot drop-off box. But he officially submitted his ballot. Eight days later, he died. 
But as his family later learned, under Michigan law, he would have to be alive on Election Day for his vote to count. His son told The Washington Post he's angry about that. But it doesn't diminish how strongly his father felt about casting his ballot. It's not that he thought his one vote was going to change the election, but he did believe it was important as an example to his children and his grandchildren. And his son said, the way you use your energy, particularly when you don't have much left, that is a true reflection of what you really care about. You can find all these stories and more on the Apple News app. We'll talk with you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.